You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Suspected patriotic hacktivists are defacing websites. A crypto mining worm is stealing AWS credentials. Cruise company Carnival suffered a ransomware attack that involved data theft. U.S. measures against Huawei are expected to make things much more difficult for the Chinese company. Ben Yellen on new tools tracking cyber data on U.S. borders. Our guest is Jesse Rothstein from ExtraHop on what happens to enterprise security when the network goes dark. And a look at the organizational structure of North Korea's hacking units. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 18th, 2020. It's difficult to distinguish spontaneous hacktivism from government-run cyber attacks, but two current campaigns look more like patriotic hacktivism than espionage. The Greek reporter says that government websites in eastern Macedonia and Thrace have been defaced with blue homeland messaging that evidently came from Turkish operators. And Z News trumpets the activities of the Indian cyber troops who've hoisted the Indian tricolor on some 80 Pakistani websites. Researchers at Cato say they've found a crypto mining worm that steals credentials for Amazon Web Services when it infects Docker or Kubernetes instances running on AWS. The worm also swipes local credentials and scans the web for misconfigured Docker instances. The malware is used by a cybercrime gang that calls itself Team TNT. The researchers have observed these attackers successfully compromise a number of Docker and Kubernetes systems. The group's activities were also described by Trend Micro in May, when they were targeting open Docker ports with a crypto miner and DDoS bot. The Team TNT worm installs the XM rig crypto miner to mine Monero. The malware isn't particularly sophisticated, but it seems to be relatively successful as far as crypto mining operations go. The method by which the malware steals AWS credentials is simple. The AWS command line interface stores credentials unencrypted in a file called Credentials, and the malware simply uploads this file to the attacker's server. It also steals the AWS configuration file for additional information about the setup. The Cato researchers note that this is the first worm they've seen that has AWS credential-stealing functionality, but they expect to see more malware using this tactic in the near future. Cruise line company Carnival Corporation and Carnival PLC disclosed a data incident to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in an August 15th 8K filing. 
The company says the incident was a ransomware attack that accessed and encrypted a portion of one brand's information technology systems. The incident also involved exfiltration of some of the company's data. The incident was discovered on August 15th, the same day the company reported it to the SEC, and the investigation is ongoing. Carnival's subsidiaries include Princess Cruises, Carnival, the Holland American Line, Seaborn, P&O Cruises, Costa Cruises, Aida Cruises, P&O Cruises, and Cunard. Carnival's SEC filing states that while the company doesn't expect the incident to have a material impact on its business, operations, or financial results, quote, we expect that the security event included unauthorized access to personal data of guests and employees, which may result in potential claims from guests, employees, shareholders, or regulatory agencies. Although we believe that no other information technology systems of the other company's brands have been impacted by this incident, based on our investigation to date, there can be no assurance that other information technology systems of the other company's brands will not be adversely affected. End quote. According to the Wall Street Journal, new U.S. measures are making it harder for Huawei to get chips made with American technology. The Washington Post sees the new measures as evidence of the difficulties in stopping an inherently complex trade. Huawei has continued acquiring chips that contain U.S. technology despite increasingly tight restrictions. The Commerce Department's restrictions announced yesterday are thought to be broad enough to cut Huawei off from these workarounds. The Post cites an anonymous industry executive as saying, This kills Huawei. Any chip made anywhere in the world by anyone is subject to this. Many North Korean government hackers operate from locations in other countries, according to a U.S. Army assessment. The report, summarized by ZDNet, says North Korea's Cyber Warfare Guidance Unit, also known as Bureau 121, had more than 6,000 members in 2015, up from 1,000 in 2010. The U.S. Army believes the number is probably much higher than 6,000 by now. These hackers frequently work from other countries other than North Korea, including Belarus, China, India, Malaysia, and Russia. The report also details the organizational structure of Bureau 121. The unit has four subdivisions. Three are focused on cyber warfare, while one is responsible for traditional electronic warfare, such as jamming equipment. The three cyber-focused subdivisions are known in the industry as the Andariel Group, the Blunarov Group, and the Lazarus Group. Andariel is made up of approximately 1,600 members and primarily focuses on reconnaissance of targeted networks and identifying exploitable vulnerabilities. Blunarov consists of around 1,700 members who are tasked with conducting financial cybercrime by concentrating on long-term assessment and exploiting enemy network vulnerabilities. Lazarus consists of an unknown number of operators and is the group the government uses to create social chaos by weaponizing enemy network vulnerabilities and delivering a payload if directed to do so by the regime. ZDNet clarifies that the industry often uses the Lazarus group as an umbrella term to refer to any hacking associated with North Korea. And finally, Pyongyang's hackers may have also adopted a technique well-suited to extracting payment in ransomware attacks as they dip their toes into the ransomware game. NK News says the Lazarus Group, its eye on insurance coverage, is pricing its ransom below the cost of backup and restoration.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Emerging standards like TLS 1.3 and DNS over HTTPS make good use of encryption to keep data from prying eyes online, but they also present challenges for enterprise security, who may have a harder time monitoring network traffic. Jesse Rothstein is co-founder and CTO at ExtraHop, and he explains what can happen to enterprise security when the network goes dark. I think anybody responsible for the security posture of an enterprise environment thinks about these things in the broader context of, of visibility and, and how, how do I secure the environment. So I'll just jump right in and say that I believe very strongly in network security. I think it's a very valuable source of data. Uh, you know, One of the, the few, maybe three most fundamental sources of data that we have. We, we can always instrument specific endpoints and run, you know, endpoint protection platforms. We can always aggregate and gather log files and telemetry, and we should do all of those things. But a, a fundamental source of data and truth is all of the, the network traffic, all of the communication that, that exists. It's extremely difficult to tamper with, and it's basically impossible to turn off. And that's why network security has been really a, a, a fundamental kind of tool in the toolbox for, for, for so very long. Well, as more and more folks shift their attention towards encrypting the data that flows through these networks, how does that affect visibility? Well, <laughs> it can make it more challenging. Um, for, first and foremost, 
I'll mention that there's a lot of traffic analysis that we can do even with encrypted traffic. Uh, we can analyze communication paths and flows of data. We can run some heuristics, traffic analysis heuristics to determine if we're looking at interactive traffic or, or bulk downloads. Uh, there, we, can, we can do some amount of fingerprinting, uh, even for encrypted traffic. These are where fingerprints like uh, JAW3 and JAW3S and the HASSH, the hash fingerprints, can all provide some visibility into encrypted traffic. But at the end of the day, no, nothing beats actually inspecting the, the payload itself. If encrypted traffic analysis were to provide uh, too much information, then encryption wouldn't be doing its job. So when we're talking about environments that, that we control and when we are ourselves the defenders of these environments, we, we have a couple of choices. For campus environments, we, we can certainly perform some sort of SSL TLS interception. Uh, there are a variety of, of ways of doing this, but this, this basically means, you know, breaking and inspecting the traffic, break, you know, and um, there are some pros and cons to doing that. But if uh, the goal is to actually analyze user traffic and, and maybe even with the hope of looking for um, you know, rogue and unmanaged uh, devices and, and uh, compromised credentials, that, that might be very, very important. We can take a very different approach with services that we control and applications that, that we ourselves are delivering. Because in, in those situations, uh, we, we manage all of the infrastructure that's actually terminating the, the encryption. That's Jesse Rothstein from ExtraHop. And I am pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, interesting article from CNET. Uh, the title is Homeland Security Details New Tools for Extracting Device Data at U.S. Borders. What's going on here, Ben? So the uh, Department of Homeland Security is required to release a privacy impact assessment about its collection, its data collection practices at U.S. border crossings. Mm -hmm. um, they just released that report at the end of July. What that report said is that uh, people who are crossing the United States border, and that includes U.S. citizens and non-U.S. citizens alike, have been subject to pretty robust data collection practices. The DHS at least has had the capability to extract a lot of very valuable data um, from your devices. So contacts, call logs, IP addresses, previous GPS locations, cell site information, uh, pretty personal information. Uh, mm -hmm. And over the past several years, the number of device searches at the border has really multiplied significantly. They noted that in 2018, there were 33,000 such searches of devices at U.S. border crossings. Wow. Now, the good news for civil libertarians on this issue is that there was a court case, I believe we talked about it on our podcast, um, decided towards the end of 2019, that declared that, uh, at least as it applied to U.S. persons, Law enforcement or U.S. Customs and Border Patrol requires le uh, reasonable suspicion to uh, search a digital device. So they no longer can conduct hmm. warrantless searches at the border. 
But um, what was going on before this case, I think, was much more uh, concerning from a civil liberties perspective. There basically were no requirements. So Customs and Border Protection would be allowed to conduct warrantless searches of your device and collect all this extremely personal information. And obviously, that's a major uh, invasion of privacy. A couple things uh, struck me in this article. Uh, One, the policy that they have uh, means they retain the data for 75 years. Yeah, it's a that long time. Like a, <laughs> it seems like a long time. Uh, <laughs> um, also, that uh, they point out that the data is saved to DHS's local digital forensics network, but then transferred to a company called Penlink, which they describe as being a phone surveillance software company that helps manage this metadata. So perhaps a little bit of third-party risk there? Absolutely. Um, Whenever you're transferring data to a third party, if you are not uh, engaging in best practices uh, in data protection, you're going to introduce some vulnerabilities. Um, One thing they noted in this article that was interesting is that, and this is purely a coincidence, but in the same week that this report was released, the NSA released guidance to its own employees about how to protect uh, information on their own employees' digital devices, saying, right, right. Use uh, your latest software patches, turn off Bluetooth, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think if you were to read these two guidance documents together, the overarching message is uh, protect your device from us, the federal government. We, the federal (laughs) government, are telling you to protect your device from maybe a different federal department, but from the federal government itself. Right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, I I love this uh, statement here, too. In the article, they say that DHS said the privacy risks of using the tools are low because only trained forensics technicians will have access to the tools and only data relevant to investigations will be extracted. That's Hmm. just, I know, that's just so (laughs) funny. It's hard to believe that a DHS spokesperson would have the gall to put that in a statement just because it's such an obvious... Anybody who's well-versed in these issues would know that that's... uh, just such a thin line that indicates that your data is not actually secure. Um, Because there are just so many potential vulnerabilities there. You're transferring this data to a third party. Um, We've known not just from Customs and Border Protection, but from other federal surveillance programs that very frequently not just the particular data relevant to a criminal investigation is being collected when you're talking about a dragnet program. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, anybody who is well-versed in these issues would see that statement and their eyes would roll into the back of their head. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's good that uh, DHS has to publish these impact assessments, yes? Absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, where Congress comes into play. When they uh, authorize these programs, Department of Homeland Security was authorized in 2002 and has been reauthorized uh, since when you have these reauthorization programs, one thing you can do is require a certain level of transparency. So require semi-annual reports, annual reports. That's often the only way we know about um, you know what our government is doing as it relates to uh, digital data or frankly anything else. So you know that is one uh, stick that Congress has that can really force agencies to be transparent. Hmm. All right. Well, interesting stuff for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all the stories mentioned in today's podcast, check out our daily news brief at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gita Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.